Well, now it's time for our ongoing consideration of the ancient book of Daniel. And I trust you've seen by now that even though the book was written long ago, it really is up to date as a handbook for keeping your faith in a corrupt culture and sharing your faith with that corrupt culture. Last weekend, we saw Daniel and his friends declare their devotion to God in a very compassionate and respectful manner, despite being under tremendous pressure. And as a result, as we saw, God gave them wisdom, He gave them knowledge, and He gave them favor. But something God didn't give them was a permanent pass where pressure is concerned. They learned that when we're faithful to God, our ability to reject compromise increases through practice. But the pressure to compromise usually intensifies. And if you're understanding of spiritual warfare, the reason for that is obvious. Our faithfulness and God's resulting favor make us greater threats to evil and thus bigger targets of evil. Or as my dad said to me on more than one occasion, son, the more you bother the devil, the more he's got to bother you. So the boys soon found themselves facing even greater pressure. Nebuchadnezzar had ordered their immediate execution. On a pressure scale of 1 to 10, I think we'd all agree that's a 10. And it appeared their lives were going to end badly. The story's found in the second chapter of Daniel, and it's chock full of truth about something that confronts us every day. The attacks of human reason against divine revelation. So we're going to step into the story today. Next weekend, Pastor Kelvin Walker will be with us ministering, and the week after that, we'll return to this chapter. And the story contains these words in verses 15 and 16. Daniel said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? That was the decree for their execution. Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Today our topic is going to be the God who speaks. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to echo your heart and to properly interpret your word. I cannot do that on my own. By your Spirit, enable us to understand what you're saying to us through the Word, the implications of it for our lives, because we can't do that on our own. And I pray that as we listen for your voice, you'll show each one of us our next step as we journey forward in grace and in the knowledge of our God. We pray these things as always for the honor of Christ and in His great name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice to our spirits today, may the Lord be with you. The story of Daniel and his friends is much more than a story of courageous devotion. 
It's the historical narrative of the clash between Nebuchadnezzar's pride and God's power. And it reveals how a human ruler who acted as if he is God came to the liberating conclusion that he wasn't, but somebody else is. In many ways, the story of Daniel symbolizes the ongoing clash between the pride of contemporary secularism and atheism and God's power. And the next story or episode of the story unfolded when Daniel and his friends hadn't been long in their careers as civil servants in Babylon. It started with a dream. Make a great song title, wouldn't it? Started with a dream. In Babylon, a bad dream was considered to be a bad omen. The Babylonians took their dreams very seriously. And whenever they had a bad dream, they would consult so-called experts in dream interpretation. And it's the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had the best of the experts in his employment. And it's yet another reminder that those who refuse to trust God choose to trust things that are vastly inferior to God, like human experts. You know, that's really a contradiction in terms, human and expert. As G.K. Chesterton suggested, the first effect of not believing in God is to believe in anything, including human experts. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, up to this point, had been satisfied with the interpretive skills of his hired experts, and that should come as no surprise. He was a ruler with absolute power who could call for execution in a moment and who had a reputation of executing anybody who disappointed him. So no surprise, he tended to get the interpretations he liked. But the day came when he had a dream that was unlike any other. Came early in his leadership tenure when he was insecure because of one revolt against his rulership after another. And it was a particularly troubling dream. He would subsequently learn that it was not the result of something he ate before he went to bed. It was the result of God putting a dream into his mind. And God still does things like that. As we've shared with you in recent days, all across the Islamic world, in countries that are closed to traditional missionary efforts, Jesus is appearing to Muslim men and women in their dreams, telling them he's more than a prophet, he was God in the flesh, and they need to trust him as their Savior. And all across the Islamic world, people are coming to faith in Christ as a result of dreams God has put in their minds. That's what he did long ago with Nebuchadnezzar. This dream was God's first efforts at dismissing this man's unbelief and drawing him towards faith in his Creator. And it reminds us that when it comes to witnessing, we're never first on the scene. If God nudges us to speak, it's because he's already been speaking undercover. 
And in my growth group last evening, people said that that just gave them so much more confidence when they go out to witness, to know that if God nudges you to speak, he's already been speaking to that person undercover. You don't know who he's already put in their path. You don't know the thoughts that he has put into their mind. You don't know the things that he has allowed to unfold in their life, all as a part of drawing them to faith. Remember, the Scripture teaches nobody comes to God unless the Holy Spirit draws them. And when God calls you to speak, he's already been drawing. He just wants you to add something to the mix. Well, when the king requested an interpretation from his experts, they were immediately stymied. Because in the past, the king would always recount the dream, and they would interpret it. But this time, he refused to reveal the content of the dream. I have a hunch he was beginning to doubt his experts. And they made some really obvious and awkward attempts to buy time and save their hides, But they finally were forced to admit, King, the information you're asking of us, that's known only to the gods. And that was a problem. Because the Babylonians didn't believe that the gods ever spoke. I really don't know why they bothered to have gods and idols and statues. Because in many ways, they were like modern secularists and atheists. They believed everything in life could be explained by impersonal, natural cause and effect. I rather suspect the reason they had gods is because the one true and living God has wired us for worship. And if we don't worship Him, we will worship something else, including ourselves. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was ticked. That's a literal translation of the Hebrew. (laughs) Some versions say he was P.O.'d, but you get the idea. He had earlier threatened to have those men torn limb from limb, and it wasn't symbolic language. He ordered the execution of every wise man in Babylon, and tragically, that included Daniel and his three Hebrew friends. When Arioch was sent to execute Daniel and his friends... Daniel was able to calm him down and delay the execution. Now again, given Nebuchadnezzar's mood, given his reputation, given the fact that if you didn't carry out his commandments, he called for your life, that was impressive stuff to tell this commander, to persuade this commander, don't execute us. Again, more favor from God. But I also suspect something was work behind, at work behind the scenes. Earlier, we saw how Daniel related to their handler, a man named Ashpenaz, with compassion and respect and earned the right to be heard. And I've got a hunch he had done the same thing with Arioch. And it's a reminder that if we want people to listen to what we believe we must be willing to listen to what they're thinking. Because listening conveys love and respect. And if we don't respect the persons to whom we witness, they won't respect our witness. If we don't begin by building bridges, we'll wake up one day and discover we've just been building walls. Don't be so eager to give somebody the truth 
that you don't show interest in them as a fellow human being and listen for where they are, where they're hurting, where they have questions, where they have false assurances. Listen before speaking. Well, Daniel persuaded Arioch to delay his execution so that Daniel could go in and appear before the king and interpret the dream. Now, when Daniel asked for that permission, God hadn't said a word to him about the dream, let alone its interpretation. He had nothing, but he had faith. You see, faith trusts God for what is needed before what is needed arrives. Once the provision you need has arrived, you don't need faith. You need recognition. You need appreciation. You need faith before the answer comes your way. It is the essence of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things unseen, and in this case, unspoken. So Daniel appeared before Nebuchadnezzar. And again, considering the king's mood, his rage, his command to execute all the wise men, that took a lot of chutzpah. That took guts. But those who kneel before God aren't afraid to stand before kings. If you're intimate with God, you won't be intimidated by men. If you're intimate with God, you'll never be intimidated by mere human beings. Nebuchadnezzar consented to give Daniel time to produce an interpretation. He had nothing to lose. If Daniel doesn't produce, he executes him. But he wanted to know what was that dream all about. So Daniel, with that, went home. And he asked his friends to pray. And I doubt he had to ask them twice. I doubt he had to give them a sermon on the importance of prayer. Those kids knew if God doesn't speak, we are dead. But there was no need to worry. Years ago, an author named Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, the title alone preaches. The title was, He is There and He is Not Silent. And the boys discovered that's true. Because that night, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't going to give him a lot of time. That night, God revealed the dream and the interpretation, much to their relief. So Daniel would return to Nebuchadnezzar knowing exactly what to say. But first, in great relief and appreciation, they got their praise on. They began to worship the Lord, and you read their words as part of the call to worship in this service. You know, it's ironic. In an effort to save themselves, the experts of Babylon made this declaration. The gods don't dwell with mortal flesh. They don't speak to us. But Daniel's prophecy set the stage for the day when God, in his effort, not to save himself but to save us, not only dwelled with mortal flesh, but in Christ came in the likeness of mortal flesh. The prophets of contemporary secularism and contemporary atheism, like the experts of Babylon, insist that the universe is what they call a closed system of unthinking, impersonal, 
cause and effect. And the effect of that is it leaves us accountable to no one but ourselves. But what God did on Daniel's behalf, what God did through Daniel, exposes them as imposters, just like the human experts of Babylon. Because in response to prayer, the living God spoke to Daniel. The personal God spoke to Daniel, and Daniel spoke for God. When he interpreted the dream, he accurately predicted the next three major world empires, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire in proper order decades before they ever came into existence. No human being could have ever done that. No human being could have ever known that unless that human being had heard from God. And Daniel didn't stop there. He foretold a fourth kingdom, the coming kingdom of God that still lies out ahead of us. And as you'll see later in his book, he shared what's going to lead up to the second coming of Christ. How did he get that stuff? A Jewish teenage exile in Babylon. How did he get that stuff from a closed, impersonal, unthinking universe of simple cause and effect? Well, he didn't. He got it from the living God. And his prophecies proved that the universe is not a closed system of unthinking, impersonal cause and effect that leaves us accountable to no one but ourselves. It is the creation of an all-wise personal God who knows and reveals the future because He is in control of it. And that leaves us accountable to Him. And that, my friends, is the issue behind secularism and atheism. They like to They cannot believe in God because of the absence of proof. But the Scriptures say creation alone shouts as to the existence of God. The intricacies of the human body and its design shouts to the existence of the eternal God. The issue is not lack of evidence. The issue is not intellectual. Those who say, I have intellectual objections to belief in the Lord Jesus, they have intellectual excuses. But an excuse is a lie stuffed into the clothing of a reason. There are no intellectual reasons for rejecting the existence of God, but every intellectual reason for accepting it. The issue is the accountability. A Christian apologist lecturing on a major college campus years ago was confronted by an atheistic professor And every time that professor raised a logical objection to faith, the apologist was able to provide a rational, logical answer. But the questions kept coming. So finally, the Christian apologist said, Professor, if I could answer every objection, every question, would you follow Jesus? He said, no. He said, why not? He said, because I'd have to change my life. There's the issue. Everything else, smokescreen. Everything else, bogus. Don't be intimidated by it. Don't be intimidated. The issue is the ongoing battle between the pride of humanity and the power of the living God. 
Daniel proves that God is not the product of our imagination, a God who exists nowhere outside of our minds. He is not the creation of weak, needy, unintellectual, uneducated people. He is the creator of everything that exists. He is the God who speaks. He is not silent. It's said that where truth is concerned, everybody has an opinion. Christianity is just one other opinion. No, no, a thousand times no. Christianity is not based on on some religious leader's speculation, on Muhammad's speculation, on Confucius' speculation. Christianity is based on a stone-cold fact of history, the death and resurrection of Christ, and it's based on revelation from the God who exists and who speaks. We do not believe because of intellectual persuasion. We believe because of revelation from the God who speaks. He speaks. He is not silent. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that as your people take a stand for truth and as they seek to lovingly, graciously share that truth, that they would not be intimidated by the illogical, irrational arguments that were blown out of the water centuries ago. First, by the creation. Later, by events like the Exodus. And then, the revelation of history to Daniel. And ultimately, by the promised resurrection. Lord, help us to be firm in our belief, compassionate and patient in our witness that we might keep and share our faith in a corrupt culture. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I promised on the front of the bulletin, we're going to change things up a bit. I think they're going to change the background here. For those of you who've been without power for a couple days, we thought that might help you out a little bit. Ooh, that's cruel, isn't it? I need to make an important announcement. As you know, our mission statement at ACAC is following Jesus in diverse community. And I sought the Lord for our mission statement years ago. Those are the words the Lord gave me. And I I believe they're appropriate. Because Jesus didn't say, come and settle down with me. Camp out with me. He said, follow me. He was reminding us that while our mission never changes, our values never change, our objectives never change, the God who leads us in those things is always on the move, and we're to move with Him. Now, an example of that can be seen in ancient Israel after the exodus from Egypt. God had revealed a clear mission for Israel. The mission never changed. Neither did the values that informed it or the objectives that they were to pursue. But there was one change that occurred over time. They were to enter into the promised land known as Canaan, and they were to conquer that land. God made that clear to Moses. Moses made it clear to the people. You know the rest of the story. After an unnecessary, wasted 40 years, the day finally came when they were ready to conquer the land. And at that point, there was a change. Not in the mission, not in the objectives, not in the values, but there was a change in leadership. Moses had been the right man with the right prophetic gifting to say, thus saith the Lord to a group of disheartened people. He was the right man to discern God's mission and values and objectives. He was the right man to face down Pharaoh. 
He was the right man to lead a reluctant, discouraged people towards a new and brighter future. But the next phase of the mission called for a warrior, not a prophet. And so it was that Joshua the warrior succeeded Moses the prophet. The mission, the same. Vision, the same. Objective, the same. Leadership, different. Several years ago, I asked the Lord, when should I transition out of the position as lead pastor at ACAC, the place I could not love more? When should I pass the baton to another? I didn't ask the Lord because I'm losing vision, losing passion, losing ability, or no longer enjoying the ministry. I'm having the time of my life. But I ask because a leadership change is inevitable. I'm not going to live to be 100, and you wouldn't want to sit and listen to me when I'm 100. Because I would just say, get off my lawn. That's what all old white guys do. Get off my lawn. I asked the Lord because I knew a change was inevitable, change would be necessary, and largely because a thorough succession process takes about two and a half years. You just don't pick up the phone and call somebody, hey, would you like to be our next pastor? That's a recipe for disaster. It takes about two and a half years of well-trained people and intentionality. And that wouldn't begin without a target date. And I certainly didn't want a process like that to have to be jump-started in the aftermath of some health crisis because then it would be done badly. So I said, Lord, I have no idea. I don't know what my health will be, yada, 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 yada. I need you to tell me when I should pass the baton. Now, that's what I've done all my life, personally in ministry. I ask God, when I know I've heard, I go with it. And the Lord clearly gave me age 72. I'm 69 now, so that's about two and a half years out. I know I don't look a day over 68. Thank you. And I have no doubt that that was from the Lord. I said, when I speak, I want you to set a watch on my lips. So I informed our very capable leadership, elders, board, and staff, and they've already started the necessary process, and it's got to be done wisely and in a God-honoring way. After the holidays, I'll make you aware of that process through the app in written form. You'll understand it thoroughly. You should. But you do need to know you're being led well by the people you've chosen to be servant leaders here. So today, I want to just make that announcement and ask one simple thing. I want to ask you to begin praying for the Joshua that God has been preparing for years. Just as God was preparing me for years in other churches before I ever heard about ACAC. And as you pray... Please pray with anticipation, not apprehension. Human beings don't like change very much, even the ones who say they do. (laughs) And so when you've been used to somebody for a long period of time and suddenly it's got to change, there's always some apprehension. What would it be like? Don't pray with apprehension. God does not give a spirit of fear. God always gives a spirit of sound mind and discipline and expectancy. Pray with anticipation. God, you're leading us. You've got great things in store for us, and we're eager to see what is next. Remember, the good at ACAC, and there is so much good, is God's doing, not mine. All I do is run errands for the Holy Spirit. 
And my six predecessors did the same. This church, 125 years old. I'm only the seventh pastor. Isn't that a wonderful legacy? But I've never saved one soul. I've never healed one body. I've never changed one heart. God does that. Human leadership changes. He stays on the scene as the master. And I'm calling this prayer focus and the entire succession planning Finding Joshua. Say that with me. Finding Joshua. Pray for our leaders. Pray for the process. And pray for that Joshua who's out there doing his thing, preaching to his congregation, not knowing that God has other plans for him. This whole process needs to be an exercise in trust. First of all, trust in God. He didn't bring us this far to step off and say, all right, I've done my part. You're on your own. But also trust in your leadership. And I'm stressing that because trust in leadership is out of fashion in this culture because there's been so many leadership betrayals. But trust in leadership is still in fashion in God's kingdom and in God's Word. And we don't take our cues from Facebook. We get our cues from getting our face in the book. And God says... God says, trust and honor and support those who are over you in the Lord that they might carry out their duties effectively and with great joy. We've got a wonderful elder board, generationally, ethnically, economically diverse. We've got a wonderful ops board. We've got wonderful people working on this whole process. Trust them. Their only agenda is to get it right to find God's Joshua. Why would they have any other agenda? You pray them into excellence. Now, I'm still got to be here, obviously, for a couple more years. And after the transition, this will be my church home. I'm spoiled. Why would I? I wouldn't go anywhere else. If you think I'm going to go to some all-white monocultural church... (laughs) No interest in that at all. I love this place. I live on Federal Street. Do you believe I almost hit a deer on Federal Street this week? <laughs> what was that dude doing in the hood? Should have been out in Wexford somewhere, bothering those people. So I'm going to stay here. I've got to ask my successor if I can be a pastor emeritus. If he says no, I've got some backslidden friends. I'm going to send them to visit him. <laughs> And I want to just worship as a part of you, but I want to teach the Bible. I have a vision of just sitting in rooms with people from ACAC who hunger for God's Word, opening our Bibles and seeing what the Lord has to say. I want to mentor young leaders. That's very important to me, to pour everything I've learned into younger men and younger women so that they can lead effectively going forward. And the last thing I want to do, I want to cheer on my successor. If he takes this place much further than I ever did, I'll be the first one standing up and shouting hallelujah because ministry has never been about me. It is always about Jesus. That's a wonderful way to live. That's the way I've attempted to live. And if he hits it out of the park, I'll be standing up and pumping my fists. And I'm confident you will love him and honor him and support him just as you've done for me. So remember, the mission... Same, following Jesus in diverse community. The values, the same. Diversity, 
justice, holistic ministry, community development, reliance on the Holy Spirit, the strategy, expanded influence, next gen, the three C's, all the same, nothing changing, just the person who's leading the charge. Now, one final thing. I've used the analogy of Moses and Joshua. Please don't press the analogy too far. Remember, Moses died before, before Joshua took over. At that point, we're going to drop the story, all right? I have no desire to die before the next person comes on. I've got a lot of fishing I have to do and grandkids to spoil. One final thing. You, you remember Moses didn't get to go in because of a very unfortunate thing he did. But I often remind people, in the goodness of God, he got in eventually. Because many years later, at the Mount of Transfiguration, who appeared with Jesus in the Holy Land? Moses and Elisha. See, God's good all the time. And all the time, God is good. God bless you.